If you have your Bibles with you, open with me to Mark chapter 15. We'll be in Mark 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have some Bibles laying around. Um, if you don't have a Bible that you enjoy to read at home, feel free to grab one and take it with you as a gift from us to you and your family. Uh, for those of you looking for some seats, we have seats over here, plenty of seats over there. Um, and so I'm glad you're here with us this morning. My name is Casey Cease, and I have the joy of serving as a pastor of Preaching and Vision here at Christ Community Church. And I'm so grateful to have you all here this morning. Um, as we've been journeying through the Gospel of Mark, we're now entering into the final stages of this Gospel, and today we're going to talk about the crucifixion of our King Jesus. We're slowing down intentionally this year as we're coming to the end of the Gospel of Mark so that we might slow down enough to see and appreciate and value God's work in and through His Son, Jesus. There are two responses that the cross should bring to bear for those who follow Jesus. As I said in my prayer, the first is devastation. The devastation of the cross is the fact that it exposes that on our very best day, we are still deserving of death because of sin. It brings about devastation because it exposes our inability, yet our desires, to be right in our own eyes before a holy and perfect God. The cross exposes the fact that our moral depravity, our moral failure, is illustrated in and through the physical torture that Jesus endured. I want to tell you as a preacher, coming up to Easter, many years, and you can talk to Brent, and you can talk to Gatlin, and John, and my wife, I don't like preaching Christmas or Easter. And part of that is just, I think, justified, because every day should be Christmas and Easter. Like a good, stubborn Christian, like every day is a celebration of the birth death, and resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. But one thing I've noticed as I've entered into this past week, and my sin is more apparent, and the more I try to do better on things, the more I fail in other areas, and then the more my pride is exposed for me trying to work harder for myself, and the more humiliated I become as I look at the cross of Christ, a perfect, innocent man, the only one who didn't deserve Not only the brutality that Jesus faced, but the spiritual wrath of God poured out for sin on him. It's devastating. And I'm not saying this to just down you. The problem is, is people who who are preachers today, many don't preach the full counsel of God. They're so desiring of you to feel better about yourself that they negate and lessen the offense of our sin and the victory of our Savior. And that's tempting to do. Humans like to be liked by other humans. The problem is, that is a great, great malpractice. Because in order to see the glory of God, in order to see the power of the gospel, in order to see these things take place, we must see the crucified Savior. We must see the man who was blameless yet beaten and scourged and mocked and sped upon and then placed upon the cross. Because in that devastation, we then find our source of ultimate liberation, freedom. That we could never do what we need to do to be right before God. Our sin is inherent and our sin is joyfully expressed and partaken in. But we see the liberation come when the liberator of Jesus comes and makes a way and becomes the isolated one, the condemned one, the crushed one, the cursed one, so that we might experience liberation. 
If you hear the cross only as your condemnation, you're not seeing it fully. If you see the cross solely as your liberation, you're not seeing it fully. We must experience the condemnation in order to savor in that liberation. That's where joy in Christ is found. This week in preparation was even more heavy because I know several of our beloved members, people who call this place home, have lost family members, have had family members hospitalized for health and mental health issues, are dealing with very difficult ethical issues when it comes to issues of life and death, are struggling through bouts of unforgiveness, depression, anxiety, fear, and doubt. For many, Easter, as you come up to the cross and the resurrection, it begins when you slow down to look at it to expose doubts within our own hearts. And so as we approach this, I'm coming pastorally also aware of these things that have been going on in our midst. And I could not think of a better place to take us this morning than to the cross. Because that is where the liberating devastation of the reality of ourselves and front of a holy God is found and set free. And so the ultimate thing I want you to take away this morning is that the crucifixion of Jesus displays the righteous wrath of God and the costly price of redemption. There's nothing cheap in that statement on purpose. There's no Walmart version of salvation. It's extremely costly. A price that you and I cannot pay. The wrath of God is real. The wrath of God is being revealed against all creation. Ultimately, as it says in Romans 1, as God is allowing his creation to turn upon themselves to ignore him and not care about it and turn to their own way. Let me just say this to you, if you are permitting sin or engaged in sin that you know goes against God's word and you don't care, I'm concerned for you. Because part of the way God's wrath is revealed against all creation is by him not intervening and rescuing you out of sin. Because through his word, he has intervened and brought rescue. So if you're waiting to feel convicted before you repent, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. So we're picking up in verse 21 of Mark chapter 15. As Jesus has already been brutalized and tenderized by scourging, the ripping of his muscle and his flesh throughout his entire body, as he's been humiliated by a group of guards, sped upon, mocked, ridiculed, covered in what appeared to be purple robes, likely a Roman legion officer's um, robe over him to mock him as a royal one, called the king of the Jews, kicked, punched, destroyed, humiliated, stripped, having a crown of thorns and a mockery smushed on his head, piercing his skull. And so after an all-nighter of this type of thing, they're now taking him to a place called Golgotha, which is the place of the skull. In verse 21, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is now modern-day Libya in northern Africa. Likely a Jewish man there for the Passover. But they compelled him. They made him. The Roman Empire had rights to do this. Who's coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. 
Typically, the, the vertical beam would already be in place, and so the horizontal beam that they would be strapped to would have to be carried. But Jesus, having been beaten, torn up, spit upon, up all night, was unable to do so, and so they compelled this man to help him. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he did not take it. They crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots of them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers. And just, just for us, a little bit later, the word robber in, in this language, in this time, could also mean revolutionary, much like Barabbas. Robbers are revolutionaries, people who have gone against the government. He was matched with these two other revolutionaries. And they crucified him with two robbers on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Crucifixion was a violent delicacy of torture for the Roman Empire to display their ultimate authority and power over those who were condemned. It was brutal. It was a slow death, usually of asphyxiation, suffocation. The, the, the scourging of the, of the muscle and of the flesh would help limit the ability of the one being crucified to hold himself up. There's usually nails placed through the hands or through the wrists and through the ankles or the feet. And they're left up there to suffocate. Interestingly enough, though, although Mark is pretty concise in the interactions that were taking place, he was also showing the fulfillment of prophecy in Old Testament scripture pointing towards the suffering servant, the Messiah. For instance, verse 23, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh and he did not take it. Points from Psalm 69, 21. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Often myrrh is thought about, uh, thought to be uh, a narcotic type substance that would dull pain, but Christ on the cross refused any pain sedation, pain removal, to drink the cup fully. The cup he would drink is not from the sour wine or the mixed myrrh and vinegar. The cup that he would drink is the profound physical and spiritual wrath of God. The Old Testament prophesied that this would be what happens to Messiah, and indeed it was. Now you might be thinking, okay, well that, that may be just one coincidence of what's happening here but let me point verse 24 and they crucified him and divided his garments among them casting lots for them to decide what each should take in psalm 22 verse 18 they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots see the the, the gospel is not devoid of the tanakh the old testament truth in fact the old testament is super useful as it points to the coming Messiah. It's super useful to illustrate the grand picture of God's truth 
from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. Typically, the church over the centuries has made the cross less offensive and has clothed Jesus, but typically when they crucified someone, they crucified them utterly in their shame and nakedness. Perhaps they allowed him or permitted him to remain in a loincloth, but typically they would strip it all away. And so you're hanging there, humiliated, and they're shooting dice for your, for your clothes, which would seem like a cruel thing, but what this shows is the power of God's prophetic fulfillment in and through the person of Jesus. God made a promise, and through Jesus, God was keeping that promise. Verse 27, with him they crucified two robbers, or and one to his right and one to his left. Now remember, James and John, in one gospel account, even their mommy, came to Jesus saying, hey, can one of my sons be at your right hand or your left hand? And they asked Jesus, can we be at your right hand and your left hand in your place of power? And interesting enough, he told them, uh, are you able to endure the cup I am about to take? And they said, of course we are. Now look at his right hand and his left hand. Two revolutionaries, robbers, being brutally put to death, the physical torment that comes from crucifixion. And indeed, we know that James and John eventually one day would meet death in one way or another. But in that moment, they were expecting a different cup altogether. They were expecting victory, overthrowing the Roman Empire, power. Yet the, those on his right and his left were condemned criminals. In Isaiah 53, 12, it says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So Jesus, in Isaiah 53, the prophecy of the suffering servant, pointing towards the one who would be pouring himself out to the point of death, not death being brought upon him, but him submitting to it and giving it. He was numbered amongst the criminals, yet through that he was bearing the sin, yet he was functioning as a substitute, yet he was absorbing the wrath of God, yet he was coming before the holy God as a holy and perfect sacrifice, bringing redemption and restoration for many. And while Mark doesn't capture it, you see in the last verse of this passage that, that even those being crucified with him were mocking him and reviling him, yet at the end of this passage in Luke, you see the one, one of them rebuking the other when he realizes who Jesus is and asking him, May I be with you in your kingdom? And Jesus tells him, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. The holiness and the perseverance and the humility of the suffering of our Savior in fulfillment with Scripture provides the appropriate payment for sin. Now, I gave you three references from the Old Testament. Let me give you one more. Verses 29 through 32. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. Hey, big shot. You said you could knock down the entire temple and build it up in three days? Come on, get down. 
Come down. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. I wonder how many times we, in our prayers or in our thoughts, ask Jesus to come down, prove himself. Come on, prove it. I mean, I know you died, I know you rose again, but prove it. Prove it. So instead of resting in faith, we're worshiping and sitting in suspicion. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Prove it. In Psalm 22, 6 through 8, it says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. This mockery, this derision, this Rejection was foretold. Yet many who claimed to know the entirety of Scripture to this point did not see nor believe. Even his own disciples were hoping for a better way, for a better Messiah, for a better Savior. Not one that would suffer and die, but one that would be victorious and reign. But in fact, since he is the king of the Jews, he had to die in the Jews' place. Since he is indeed the king of the Jews, he had to die the physical and spiritual death that God's people deserve because of their disobedience and their sin. And the blessing that began with Abraham to be a blessing to all nations would then have to pour over to those who are not Jewish because the Jewish people in and of themselves because of their sin, could not obey God, could not enjoy God, could not honor God, could not see God. And so God stepped in and God made a way. When was the last time When was the last time you sat before the cross? Not with doubt or scrutiny or judgment or just passively, but realize the great victory that was being purchased and applied in that moment. Now, some of you might have seen a crucifix, which is a cross with Christ still on it. The good news is that Christ is not still on the cross. But that crucifixion is important for us to understand. It's pivotal for us to understand the humiliation and the judgment of God upon the person of God through Jesus Christ is essential to our faith. As it brings devastation, it also brings liberation. 
One of the things we can take away from this passage is that the crucifixion is profound evidence of the sinfulness of mankind. On your best day, you deserve the cross. Your best deeds deserve death. Your worst moments, you need the cross. In the midst of your addictions, in the midst of your celebration, you need the cross. The crucifixion is profound evidence of the sinfulness of mankind that the one perfect faithful God became flesh in and through his son Jesus, lived perfectly, fulfilling the laws and the prophecy, yet was obedient to the point of death, even death on a wooden tree cross, becoming a curse, Because on your best day, on my best day, on our best day, we're not good enough. Yet how many of us who do follow Jesus are keeping track of our good deeds and our bad deeds? Keeping a checklist. And when we can't handle that any longer, then we start keeping track for other people. I was woken after 3 a.m. this morning by some neighbors who do not yet come to church here. Very loud. I did not do a breathalyzer on them, but I think they had been strongly imbibing at some point throughout the evening. I was livid. Sunday morning is my morning, and I'm preaching on the cross. I need my beauty sleep. Y'all need my beauty sleep. And I was laying in there, and I was like, I sure hope someone's having a heart attack and something serious is going on, so I go outside. And I at least thought I hoped they were fighting, because as a pastor, I'd be like, hey, guys, can I pray for you and then meet tomorrow afternoon? But they're just out having a loud conversation. Very, like, I could hear, like, diagonal behind us in their backyard through our windows, and we have a well-insulated house, it's pretty new, so loud. I was so mad, I was so judgmental, I was praying for fire from heaven, and then it hit me. Who are you? I thought I was better. I thought I deserved more, but who am I? It just so happened I'm preaching on the cross this morning, and so I was able to fall asleep finally praying. I don't know if Steph remembers, I did grumble a little bit further, but I fell asleep praying for my neighborhood, praying that I might get the courage up to invite my neighbors to join us on Easter, to begin a relationship, to get to know them. Why? Because the crucifixion is a profound evidence of the sinfulness of mankind. It is a reflection of my sin and yours. It is a reflection of humanity's universal need for rescue. So when people give you that trite response, well, you just need to go to the cross. Take that to the cross of Jesus. The ground is level at the cross. Don't let it be minimized or religious jargon, but let it slow down and take that as mercy and say, Let's look at the cross. Because the the cross does expose 
our own sin. It keeps us balanced and it keeps us grateful because on our best day, on our worst day, we need the cross. As the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We've all turned away. We have all sinned. None of us are better than the others. Those of us who are elders or pastors are not better than you. We're all in desperate need of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. We're all in need of salvation that can be purchased alone through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. We've all gone astray. We've all sinned against God. We're all deserving of the wrath of God, yet God made a way through his son Jesus. Romans 6.23 brings both clarity on consequence and hope in redemption. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There had to be a payment for sin. The excruciating death of Christ on a cross, physical and spiritual wrath of God, was the payment to be made for the free gift. So the second thing we can see in this passage is that the crucifixion displays the justice of God. I don't know about you, I, I actually came to faith in a United Methodist Church, and it was considered a more conservative United Methodist Church, evangelical. But we love talking about mercy, we love talking about grace, we love talking about the love of God and the forgiveness of God, and all of those things are necessary and good to discuss, but they fall pretty flat compared to looking at the justice and severity of God's wrath. Unless we look at the justice and severity of his wrath, we do not embrace and enjoy the depths of the grace and love and redemption and mercy that God has provided through Jesus. And so the cross brings to the forefront the justice of God. Paul brings understanding to this uh, to this. Truth about God's justice from Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So we looked at how the prophets were pointing to, ultimately, the death of Christ on the cross. But God's righteousness has now been fulfilled, no longer just through the law and prophecy, but the law and prophecy pointed to this fulfillment. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What do you do when you realize that you have sinned against a holy and perfect God? What do you do when you realize that no good works pay back the cost of sin? What do you do when you realize that your unforgiveness is just heaping coals upon your own head? What do you do? Do you try harder? Make a checklist? Get accountability? No, you go and look at the cross. This redemption, this restoration, this forgiveness, this payment can only be trusted in, received by faith. The writer of Hebrews says, what is faith but the confident of assurance of what we hope for is going to happen? The evidence of things not yet seen. We, we trust in Christ. We hope in Him. Why? Because we all fall short of the glory of God. 
and are justified. We are made right. We are found not guilty because we were condemned guilty, but we're called not guilty because Christ became guilty on our part. Whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a payment for, as a direct object of God's wrath, as a substitute for you and I. This was to show, verse 25, second part, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness as present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I heard my friend John sharing his testimony this Thursday at our men's breakfast. And he said that this verse had really landed on him and John had landed on me as well. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me break that down for you. God is just. God cannot deny any portion of his character for the sake of valuing us higher. If God valued anyone or anything higher than he valued his own glory, he would be an idolater. He would not be God. And so God... and honoring of his character carried out justice for sin through his son Jesus and by doing so was both just in punishing sin but also was the one who justifies you and I so he's just in punishing sin but he also gets the glory for being the justifier of those who are in sin he's the one that rescues us he's the one that accomplishes us He is the one that redeems us. He is the one that gets the credit and the glory for the rescue of us. God is both just and he's also the justifier. And the cross displays the justice of God. And the cross displays the justification of God in and through Jesus for those who believe. The last thing we see from this passage is the crucifixion is the extraordinary path toward the victory of God. The crucifixion is the extraordinary path toward the victory of God. While the the cross appeared to the disciples, and for those who this is new to, it appears as an utter defeat. In fact, it was a necessary course towards the victory that God has over sin, death, and Satan. In fact, the cross is the means to that end. As we talked about in the previous point, God being just and the justifier, the cross then is that means towards this ultimate victory and justification. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 21-25, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he, was re- when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself uh, himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We were straying, we were wandering, we were going away, we were rejecting, we were rebelling, we were going our own way, but Christ intervened. And as he was intervening and obeying, 
this horrific death. He did not revile back. He did not speak harshly back to those speaking harsh to him. He did not forsake his calling, but endured. But I want you to focus on the second part of verse 23 just for a moment. Because we say here at Christ Community Church that we exist to glorify God by making followers of Jesus Christ who are growing and multiplying. And we want to see this take place by making disciples of Jesus in authentic community. We want to help you follow Christ. I want you to see how Jesus endures the ultimate suffering. Second part of verse 23. But he continued on going and trusting himself to him who judges justly. Even in the midst of the rejection of God poured out on the person of God through the wrath of God. It says that Jesus endured by continuing to trust. In sickness, in depression, in brokenness, through divorce, through addiction, are you trusting? Are you continuing to trust? Because the way of Jesus is not a way of trying harder. It's a way of extreme and radical trust in Jesus. Seeing our need ultimately met on the cross. Seeing the powerful victory of God through the justice of God and the justification of God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's the liberation. The liberation of the cross, the the finality of this payment is that sin no longer has victorious reign. The crucifixion shows us that God has made a way so that we no longer continue to give ourselves over to sin, to do whatever feels right or good in the moment, but rather we can say no to sin and live following Christ. I don't know about you, I don't have that down perfectly yet. So the question for us followers of Jesus as we're growing and Lord willing, as God brings the harvest and allows us to multiply, the question is, which way are we falling? Are we falling forward towards him, hoping in him, looking to him, turning to him, trusting in him, or are we falling away? Ways that we know that we're falling away is that we're we're, we're hiding and, and we're blaming and we're walking into the darkness and isolating ourselves from community rather than leaning in and falling forward and confessing and asking and praying and seeking for help. One of the provisions by which God calls us in our suffering to entrust ourselves to him is through his bride, the church. If I had a dollar for every time one of you in counseling or in a meeting said, I don't like asking for help, I would have a hundred bucks a week. Probably more than that. I don't like asking for help either, and I think that's why God's let me be a pastor of a church plant. Just the operation on Sundays, we need help. I'd rather do it myself. Every time I see a need for a road crew pop up, I'm like, I'll be there. And then whoever's in charge of road crew that week is like, you can't come. You need to preach. I'm like, I've written my sermon already. I'm not cramming. We'll pray. Because that's what elders do. They pray. I need help. And so do you. 
Stop trying to do it alone. The cross liberates you from isolation. The cross paves the way for reconciliation. The cross paves a way for meaningful, life-giving, transformative community. The cross makes a way for conflict to not have the final say over relationships. The cross makes a way for failures to be redeemed and restored and used as an example and as a warning for others. And at times as a restoration for others. Here at Christ Community Church, we worship a Savior who was crucified, literally, who bore the wrath of God, literally, who died, literally, and who three days later rose again, literally. And that's where we're inviting you to go all in. We're not asking you to be converted to a church. We're asking you to be converted to a crucified and resurrected Christ. The crucifixion of Jesus displays the righteous wrath of God and the costly price of redemption. Your debt has been paid. And as Jesus cried out, as recorded in John, the death on the cross of Christ declares that the payment for sin, the punishment for sin, for those who believe, it is finished. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gravity of the good news of the cross, Lord, and the exposure for us of our our sin and our need for a Savior. And Lord, I pray this morning, if any man, woman, or child is here this morning that hasn't yet placed their hope and trust alone in the accomplished work, the work of Jesus on the cross, the power of his resurrection, the hope of his return, God, you would grant him or her eyes to see, ears to hear, the ability to understand, to place their hope and trust in Jesus to cry out to God and trust in you alone. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling or suffering and they're doing so in isolation. Lord, may the cross beckon them to the one who's both just and justifier through the means that you have provided your bride, the church. And Father, those of us who are being maturing, that are maturing in and through the accomplished work of Jesus that are growing in our faith, may we not do so so that we can turn inwardly and isolate and protect, but that we would be turned outwardly. Father, we pray for Easter coming up, not only for our little church community, but for the churches in the area. God, it would be a great moment to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, that our community would be impacted by the gospel. We need you, Lord. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.